Welcome to Conversation Mill. My name is Rebecca Dale and I am the host of the show. I have a passion for sharing how the creation of thriving local economies benefits us all. I'm fascinated by how we come together to form our communities on a macro and micro scale and how our histories and stories when shared can not only motivate and inspire, but can facilitate understanding. As our communities, large and small, bring back a more progressive Main Street, individuals are stepping out to pursue their passions and local leaders are pushing back against corporate greed. It's time to engage these community leaders and small business owners in conversation. What are the driving forces behind their courage and success and how can we continue to build communities that embrace diversity, support the local economy, and create a healthy ecosystem for the culture at large? Join us now in conversation. The views expressed in this introduction are mine, your host, Rebecca Dale, and not that of our guest today or of their company. It is interesting to me that the episode today may be controversial to some individuals. If you are a follower of the podcast and listen to the diverse group of people we talked with in season one, you will know that this podcast is about creating community and learning best practices from the leaders in our communities that don't often get the recognition they deserve or that don't get a chance to tell their story. In this two-part episode, I sit with co-founder of Pacific Biodiesel, Kelly King, to discuss and learn about the importance of creating clean and sustainable energy replacements. Unfortunately, climate change has been politicized to divide us. Being good stewards of the earth, promoting locally grown foods, organically grown foods, or as some of my friends and I like to say, just food as it naturally should be and promoting ideas that reduce our dependency on foreign oil have been turned into political fodder to campaign for or against. Kelly and I discussed that in this interview. To continue to build community and follow the mission of this podcast, I want to clearly articulate my love for the natural world and why I believe in what companies like Pacific Biodiesel are doing. I could do a whole separate episode on this, and perhaps I will in the near future, But here's the abbreviated version for this series of episodes. Nature is completion and life-giving for me. And I believe it could be for all of us if we learn to curb the addiction to technology. We have been separated from the natural world to the point that many people don't fully comprehend where their food comes from or how observing the natural world, past and present, can help us predict the future. To me, nature is a miracle. I don't believe it is an accident. And if it's not an accident, then it has purpose and is touched by the divine. Therefore, it deserves my respect and now needs my protection. I do not believe that protection happens when we choose to go to war for resources that when produced and shipped around the globe can and do have deadly consequences to the natural earth and its species not to mention those that die to enforce trade agreements, borders, and secure oil wells. I believe that the protection of this creation that I have been given starts with learning about how to preserve the earth, learning how all living things have a role to play in the way that the cycles of nature operate, 
and that bringing attention to the fact that global corporations, specifically in the food, fossil fuels, and plastics industries, will greenwash, bend the rules, and line politicians' pockets to help keep us divided on common-sense solutions that would increase food security for all local communities, ensure healthier ecosystems for plants and animals, and remove dangerous chemicals and microplastics from our foods. That is why I believe conversations like this one are not just important for informational purposes, but also my responsibility. I grew up in a Christian faith tradition, and I was taught that on a sparrow falls from the sky without God's notice. Many of us go out into nature to connect with the divine or the holy, to humble ourselves, to try and gain perspective on how vast the universe is and how small we are, or to breathe and feel revived. You can have a faith practice, you can be a fence sitter, or have no divine belief at all, and still agree that maintaining a healthy earth and being good stewards of its resources is the ultimate way to care about people, about strangers you will never meet, and the generations that come after us. Our next two episodes feature the Maui-born company Pacific Biodiesel. Co-founder Kelly King sits with me to talk about what biodiesel is and why it is crucial that we continue to develop renewable energy and petroleum replacements. Kelly gives us a quick education on biodiesel, carbon, and sustainability to start our conversation and to give us context for our next conversation. I encourage you to watch their YouTube videos and documentary to learn more. The links are in the show notes. Now, please join us in conversation. I want to start with some language that frequently comes up with what we're about to talk about today. And I was hoping you could define some terms for us so our listeners right off the bat, if they hear these words as we go through the podcast, are familiar with them and we don't have to stop. Let's start with the word biodiesel. What is that referring to? Biodiesel refers to the product that we make. It's 100% uh, vegetable oil or animal fat based, so it has no petroleum in it when we make it. And then um, and it's a fuel that works in any diesel engine, pretty much. We've gotten to a high level of quality because we distill the fuel now where there's really no other impurities in it. And uh, it can be blended with petroleum diesel at any percentage the most common percentage you'll see is a 20% blend of biodiesel with 80% petroleum diesel, which they call B20. So when you hear B, you know, B50 is 50% biodiesel, B20 is 20% biodiesel. But uh, basically it's a, it's a fuel we make by taking um, vegetable oil or animal tallow and um, removing the glycerin. That's the main part that you need to take out of vegetable oil in order to make it viscous enough to, um, you know, to run in your engine. Another word we're going to use today is um, carbon emissions or net carbon emissions. Can you explain uh, maybe carbon and then the carbon emissions portion of that? Well, carbon is all around us. You know, we're made of carbon. We emit CO2. We every every living thing emits CO2, and so the the idea of renewable fuel. Uh, when we first, I, you know, I came up with this explanation. It's kind of simple, but it's easy to understand because when we first started making biodiesel, people got the wrong impression, thought it was reusable, and they I get phone mm. calls going, "Oh, this is so great because." 
you know, I'm a single parent and I have to drive my four kids around. And so if I could reuse my fuel, I'm like, no, not reusable, it's renewable. And so the way I explain to people is you have a, if you had a field of sunflowers, say, out here, and they died on the field, they're going to emit carbon. They're going to have carbon emissions as they die. But they've sequestered all of those, all of that carbon in growing. So the living things sequester carbon to grow, and then they emit it when they die. And so what we're doing is we're we're taking the the oil out. You know, we're, we're taking the flowers off the field. We're processing the oil so that uh, those emissions are going to come out of your engine now. So we're put, we're making them into fuel. You're burning them in your diesel engine, and those are the same emissions that would have been emitted by this living thing dying. So it's renewable in that it's a cycle. Everything we're, um, everything we're making biodiesel out of has sequestered carbon at some point. Whereas uh, in contrast, petroleum uh, fuels are in the ground. They're pulling something out of the ground and putting it into the atmosphere that wouldn't otherwise be here. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the dead dinosaurs are not going to be sequestering carbon because they're under under the ground, you know. And so it's a that's the difference between renewable carbon emissions mm-hmm. and non-renewable. Last term I want to talk about for our listeners is sustainable energy and what that is. Well, you know, so the word sustainable has been so used and overused mm-hmm. and greenwashed and everything. So you kind of almost have to ask, what does it mean to you? Yeah. <laughs> um, but sustainable fuels are things that we can uh, we can perpetuate we can keep growing sunflowers or safflower or canola whatever it is we're growing there's a lot we, we're going to be um, uh, we're not going to be monocropping hmm. we're going to be doing uh, crop rotations because there's so many plants that can make biodiesel that's in and of itself makes it a lot more sustainable as a product because if you um, you know we've seen what happens to coffee we market coffee now we have the coffee berry borer that attacks the coffee industry you've marketed coffee, <clears throat> there's nothing else that can replace that. Uh, whereas with biodiesel, we market biodiesel, we can grow umpteen different plants uh, on the fa- on the field, uh, along with the waste cooking oil that we're collecting, and I make biodiesel out of it. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to change our marketing. We're still marketing the same fuel. It's still um, as good for the planet as any other plant-based fuel. Uh, so, so to us... That's a big part of it, the fact that um, that we're not locked into one crop when we get into agriculture. The other part is uh, the fact that because it's renewable, that we can do this perpetually mm-hmm. without advancing climate change. Pacific biodiesel is full circle sustainability. Can you explain how you're doing that here at Pacific Biodiesel? Wow, it's a that's a long proposition but you know it's interesting because we've been doing it for so long since we're the company's in our 28th year and from the beginning our mission statement was about community-based biofuels community-based biodiesel for the future we've never changed that so the mission statement has remained the same all these years because we believe in the benefits and the sustainability of doing this on a community basis we're making fuel here out of our own waste resources and agricultural resources versus shipping it in, shipping the feedstock. Mm-hmm. in. we're doing a little bit of shipping feedstock in while we're trying to grow local feedstock. But the ultimate, the ultimate goal is to have, would be to have a biodiesel refinery on each island using the resources from each island and um, the fuel being sold on the island that it's being grown on. That's, that's the 
eventual vision of this. But meanwhile, what we what we started with was um, the most sustainable thing you could do, which is taking used cooking oil that's already been cooked with and keeping it out of the landfill, making it into this renewable fuel that burns cleaner and keeps our you know it's a it's um, almost a carbon neutral thing because mm-hmm. otherwise it would go in the landfill and it would create all this methane and you know also had we were having issues with um, spontaneous fires because sure. there's so much energy in that oil. Uh, so we've been we've been doing this since day one, taking the the oil out of the landfill um, or keeping it out of the landfill, taking it for free from from the restaurants. I mean, the the restaurants when we first started were paying. One to two dollars a gallon to have it hauled off. We came in and said, "We'll pick it up for free," and you know, gave them bins to hold the oil in until we could come and collect it. And so it's be, it's turned into this um, idea of this circular business was always in our sights and in our vision. And now people are calling it the circular economy. So we really are the poster child for the circular economy, even before we were calling it that. We just knew that what we were doing was a good thing because it was creating biggest benefits for the community in terms of revenues that stays here in terms of jobs, green jobs, in terms of uh, clean fuel that uh, can replace the diesel fuel that gets shipped in here on mm-hmm. petroleum <laughs> diesel. Yeah. Uh, so we always knew it was a good thing. It was a holistic uh, vision. And now we have a name for it. It's called the circular economy. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned how the restaurants previously were paying to have that cooking oil removed. And now here you come along and you're doing that for free. So you have that, again, that community level. Now you're saving businesses money Mm -hmm. that they can, whether it's pay their employees more, expand, you know, provide benefits that maybe they didn't before. So I love your explanation of it, but there's also money Money kind of pulls the strings of so much power. And that was a question that I had a little bit later down, but I think this is a good time to talk about it. What are the financial benefits of biodiesel in doing this circular economy? Because money does pull the strings of power and it's, that's a really hard behavior for us to unlearn is the, the money part of it. Right. Right. Okay. I, I, that's a good question. I, um, there, Millions of dollars that we've saved restaurants in, you know, now that we're picking up the cooking oil for free. And also the restaurants where we get cooking oil, we give them discounts on their grease trap removal. Mm-hmm. That's the part that we have to charge. I mean, that's like raw sewage. It's worse than raw sewage. I mean, any, anybody who's lived, who's worked in a restaurant understands grease trap um, and how nasty it is. So, yeah. but we give them um, discounts on that kind of service. Um, so there's a, there's a, big economic gain for the restaurants plus they don't have to be part of the model that throws all their you know their waste into the landfill there's also the green jobs we have jobs uh we're with this five and a half million gallons of production that we're doing on the big island supports uh close to 100 jobs on three islands so we have the um and they're good family wage earning jobs so you know benefits and everything so they're we're we're contributing to the um the labor force there um and the other part that that is a benefit to the community is the fact that the revenue all stays here we probably 85 cents of every dollar of revenue that we bring in stays in hawaii and it's the opposite for petroleum you know that's right. how much leaves the economy every time you buy a gallon of of uh, diesel fuel or gasoline so that's a a huge part of it 
And we've never really gotten a lot of credit for that and also for the environmental mitigations. When we came in the late 1990s and was when we started helping because we've been making fuel since 96 but then in the, in 99 we were asked by the county can you help us with the grease trap we were just taking in the cooking oil at that time well they were having i want to say 8 to 10 grease trap or spills wastewater treatment facility spills a month which are expensive to clean up um and largely because of all the grease that was coagulating in these facilities that wasn't supposed to be there but there was nowhere else to put it so when we started processing grease trap material, they went down to zero to one spill a month. And now you rarely even hear about a wastewater treatment facility spill. So however many thousands of dollars it costs to do that cleanup, multiply by 10 a month, you know, and that's the money we're saving the economy as well, our local economy, because mm-hmm. they don't have to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting that the the folks who were, collecting the grease trap which you know i think of as a real service because nobody that's like a job that nobody wants it should be on like the nastiest jobs show or yeah something. yeah but you know they were it. collecting it but they had nowhere to take it and so they would just like slip it into the sewage sludge that was going into the wastewater treatment facility and it would build up and build up and it was it really wasn't completely legal so everybody's legal now you know where you know now they have a place to take it um, they have where have something to do with it that keeps it out of the landfill. Although they made a mistake last uh, in the last term, mayor's term, and we didn't have our next section of landfill ready to go. So they actually started landfilling a lot of green waste and grease material again, which was hurts my heart yeah. because you know we worked so hard to get all of that stuff out of the landfill diversion. That we were part of the landfill diversion, mm-hmm. keeping all of that out of our landfill. And you briefly mentioned the environmental impact, but also with the with the biodiesel fuel, if that spills, the environmental impact is less as well versus a petroleum-based correct. diesel, correct? Correct. I mean, it's not going to kill any birds or fishes in the ocean. It's as biodegradable as, as like, you know, sugar. Mm-hmm. And we've actually, we were, I don't know if we're still, I haven't looked at our, our customer list recently, but... I know you. Uh, you know when I was still working with the company, so it was probably a decade ago. We were working with the Stevedores on Oahu, mm-hmm. and we got one of the. I can't remember the name of it. Do you, Joy, McCabe? I think we we got them on biodiesel. It was a little more expensive than regular diesel to you know running their equipment dockside. And I clearly remember the first time they had a spill of biodiesel. They you know did what they're used to doing with petroleum. They they stopped everything. They taped off around it. They called the EPA down and you know to t- to let them know what happened. To talk about how they would remediate. And they're like, "It's biodiesel. You don't have to do anything." Yeah. And they called us up. They were so excited. They're like, yeah. "We don't have to do anything if we spill this fuel." Yeah. So you know, you can imagine the amount of time and money that they save by not have every time they have a spill, not having to go through this whole mm-hmm. exercise and then the remediation and all the people it takes to do all that, multiplied by anybody who's using it in their boat. Mm-hmm. You know, we have we have uh, probably a dozen tour commercial tour boats around the state using biodiesel 100%. Um, not to mention that the dive boats love it because when you dive on one of these tour boats, you're going off the stern, right? That's where the exhaust is coming out. So, you know, people don't have to breathe in the diesel fumes when they go in the water now. There's all those little things that people forget about, like going off the boat and the fumes of the diesel coming off that 
we don't think about when we're talking about clean energy. And even recently, there was a spill of diesel on Haleakala. Um, and there's always going to be spills because, and they, they were, I, the last thing I read was it was attributed to like uh, equipment failure or a tech failure. And those things mm. are bound to happen. So mitigating that with a cleaner fuel j- just makes sense. Even right. if the price tag is a little bit higher, because like you mentioned, the cleanup of those spills, the price tag that's associated with that is much higher than what you're dealing with, with maybe just paying for something clean. Right. And the destruction too. Yeah. Um, DLNR changed to biodiesel several mm-hmm. years ago under Suzanne Case. Um, and they, they put it, they like to have it in their generators because when they got, when they have some gen, they've got some generators that are in wetland areas sure. and they, there was a noticeable, um, uh, reduction in the amount of wildlife that would be in that area around mm-hmm. the generator when they were running it on bi- on regular diesel, so they switched to biodiesel, and you know it's like hardly even noticeable to the the ecosystem now. Wow, so it's, it's a lot safer. So those all those kinds of things they do at some point translate into dollars saved, mm-hmm. and that's the part that we've never gotten credit for from our county. I mean, the state kind of sort of gets it. The county. Um, in the past has um, really given us a hard time. And actually, under a couple of um, administrations ago, the head of the Department of Environmental Management was the one that kicked us out of the landfill here on Maui. So, And that was when we started moving everything over to the Big Island. We, and we had been building the refinery over there anyway, but we were processing biodiesel right mm-hmm. here. Uh, so we're not doing that anymore. And it's actually, in the short term, it's a lot more efficient to to process all the biodiesel at one large refinery than to try to do it separately, like we were doing on Maui and Oahu and then shipping it around. And because we have distillation now, the fuel quality is just tremendous. It's Mm. the best fuel quality for biodiesel in the United States, if not the world. Since you were just kind of mentioning some of the political, I guess, uh, roadblocks, why, and I'm not sure the best way to phrase this question, but why would any political party put roadblocks in front of something that has community benefits, puts money back into the community, protects the environment, prevents diesel spills. Help me understand, like, let's reverse engineer why they would roadblock you. Okay, well, (laughs) we're extremely high integrity people. And we've never padded anybody's pockets mm-hmm. um, like our competitors do. You know, they, they're big lobbyists in the oil industry. There were big lobbyists in the ethanol industry back in the, um, in the mid-90s, mid mm. to late 90s when we got started. And that's, they pushed for the ethanol mandate. They had big money going in thinking they were going to build an ethanol plant. Well, ethanol has a very poor, comparatively poor energy balance. Mm. So you cannot really produce it at this level. You have you would have to build something that, that processes like 50 million gallons a year. You can't build something that 5 million gallons a year and make money off of it because right. the energy balance just isn't there. And it's not as good for the environment because of the, you know, it's got about half the energy balance of biodiesel. So that was, and then, you know, that doesn't even get into all the issues with, you know, the social issues with corn and right. the, the, all the, the GMO stuff. So, you know, just looking at it back then, and and I have friends who were involved in that lobbying, but I tried to work with the ethanol lobby and said, hey, we should do a biofuel lobby. We should be lobbying for all biofuels, you know, if we're going to try to get this mandate. And I got kind of the back of the hand, oh, we don't need you. We're, you know, we've got big money in this. And we were really small back then, our operation. So, you know, fast forward to like, 
you know, even 10 years ago, the ethanol lobby was coming to me going, hey, can we work together? <laughs> After all the things that we've been learning about ethanol and, you know, the whole world corn issue, I really didn't want to be, you know, associated with it. But we haven't been able to get a biodiesel mandate because they had such a bad experience with the ethanol mandate. Mm. When they put that into the state uh, statute, people immediately started having problems with ethanol um, in their, especially in their fuel tanks, mm. because it would it it would eat up the inside lining. They weren't prepared for ethanol. They weren't. They didn't set it up correctly. And so now you see gas stations that actually advertise ethanol free. You know, and they're yeah. proud of it. So when we went in and we went, well, this is totally different. Um, the biodiesel mandate makes sense because we're already making biodiesel. We already know it works. We, you know, we have HECO is on it and DHX and, uh, you know, I mean, we've got big companies, Maui Disposal, Honolulu Disposal that are using biodiesel and it's working. Yeah. The whole fleet on Oahu is um, all of their diesel fleets are running on biodiesel uh, for the the city and county over there, uh, so the places where we have, you know, the smart people that are looking for those solutions and understand, you know, not just there were times when biodiesel was more expensive than petroleum, but what they're looking at is, hey, this is keeping all this grease out of our landfill. Mm-hmm. So they're they're making up for it um, in the whole, you know, circular model. Our county has not caught on to that here. You know, everything's been really political, and so. I feel like some of it might be personally against me because mm. I'm involved in politics now and, you know, sure. people are worried about the getting ahead of them or something. So okay. I, I, I think a lot of that was what was happening on Maui. And Maui has still not used a drop of biodiesel in any of the county fleets. Wow. Um, and so we were, we're looking at this new, next uh, federally funded project. We have to go big time into local feedstock production. Mm. We're probably going to do that on Kauai because Kauai has really – you know, rolled out the red carpet and, hey, we want you. And we've got a contract with KIUC now, the the utility over there. They're way ahead of the rest of the utilities in the state as far as getting to renewable. They're at 70% now. Oh, wow. They need a firm um, renewable energy like biodiesel to back up their last 10, 15% or whatever to get to 100%. Mm-hmm. But I believe they're going to be at 100% renewable by the end of this decade. And, you know, the state mandate is 2045. Yeah. So they're 15 years ahead of the rest of the utilities. So, we you know, the last um, five years or so, we've gotten really, we've built really good relationships with uh, HECO and, you know, the utilities yeah. on the other islands. And they are trying to build up their um, inventory and their use of it. And they're doing a good job of that. But it's... May, there's still majority of their energy comes from petroleum. Mm-hmm. Speaking a little bit more on that political piece, and you mentioned being involved in politics. And again, I, I don't really necessarily know there's a question here, but just for us to restate to people, this is why it's so important to vote at a local level and know where your candidates stand on the things that are important to you in your community. Because if maintaining the species of birds and animals that you have in your community are important to you or maintaining the soil soil quality or the water quality is important to you, it's important to go and investigate what your candidate is going to do once they're elected. Yeah, or has done. I mean, yeah. I because I chaired the Climate Action Committee the last few years of my council terms, uh, I was um, instigator of a lot of the legislation that went through the county successfully in the, the chemical sunscreen ban, mm-hmm. the reduced outdoor lighting, the blue light, um, you know, just save, help save the fledgling native um, seabirds and the turtles, um, the wetland bill, wetland preservation, the net zero homes bill. There's a lot of those kinds of things 
that I instigated or helped instigate, you know, there were some like pesticide and, and um, single-use plastic bills that we expanded that, uh, and, and the pesticide bill we actually brought back from, it didn't pass a few years yeah. ago. Uh, so we were able to pass a lot of that kind of legislation, and I'm hoping that that continues to uh, foster under this new administration. Because if we go backwards and this mm-hmm. new council starts undoing some of that, first of all, we're going to look terrible in the eyes of the world because a lot of this, a lot of the attention Maui's getting is because of our forward thinking and being leaders in in the arena of biodiversity. Um, but the other thing is that we, you know, we rely. There is a a monetary proposition to these these efforts in mm-hmm. fact when we were passing the reduced blue light lighting bill uh dlnr was in support uh dofa we had two people from dofa the department of uh, forestry and wildlife who came out and testified in favor of it and one mm-hmm. of them jeff bagshaw who also helped us pass the chemical sunscreen ban um actually did the math on it and he said you know we the the benefits we get from seabirds the, which basically comes from their guano or their, you know, yeah. their droppings, is so widespread, and it's it's a lot of it is affects the wetlands and watersheds, the watersheds especially because we're trying to keep native plants up there, to to keep the watersheds um, providing for us, mm-hmm. and if we lose, he he did the calculations. If we lose our native seabirds and we have to do that ourselves, we're talking about eleven million dollars a year. So, you know, it's not, and that's just one piece of the ecosystem. So it's not just about saving the birds. Uh, We mean, we had, and we had some politicians come out and testify against the bill during that period who said, you know, everything should be about the humans first. Well, humans depend on our ecosystems. Humans depend on our biodiversity. This Mm -hmm. is about humans as much as it is about our, our environment. And that's what people have got to start seeing that we're not making a sacrifice we're actually building up our future, our mm-hmm. future reserves, and we're, we're protecting our environment for our future generations. It shouldn't be a conflict. It shouldn't be a, us, you know, humans versus the environment. And if we don't get that, we're going to be in big trouble in about 10 years. Yeah. Let's go all the way back to 1995 and the aha moment that leads to what is now the longest producing biodiesel company in the world well or uh, there there was one plant in austria that was started the year before us okay it's still going and we talked to those people too so we know everybody in the biodiesel industry from very close so we're the oldest biodiesel company in america for sure so what was it that bob and you saw prior to 1995 that then launched what became pacific biodiesel well, it was all Bob. We had a generator business at the time, which is still going. It's called now. It's it's been sold a couple of times. It's called King Power and Marine. It's on Maui, but we were. It was called King Diesel back then. And Bob had uh, was working on. He's a diesel mechanic, so he okay. was working on diesel engines. And we became the dealer for Cummins engines and Onan generators. Um, but he had a contract out at the landfill, the south, the central Maui landfill, and every month he would go out and you know service the generator. Well, he started talking to when Eco Compost folks uh, started that project out at the landfill. Uh, he was talking to them about some of their problems in the mid '90s, and they were having these spontaneous fires that would just combust because there's so much energy in the cooking oil that was being dumped in the landfill. 
Um, it was also, a, a, back then, the liners weren't as good as they are now for the landfill. And so there was a, um, an issue of how much of that is going to leach through the landfill, the liner, and contaminate our surface water. Sure. So that was a potential health hazard. And he was talking about them right around the mid um, 1990s was when the internet superhighway became available to the general public, and Bob was just addicted to that. It was like, <laughs> wow, there were, and you know, I like, I love telling this to young people because there were no pictures, there was no, there was no moving parts to this. There was, it was words on a screen, yeah. and if you had a an Apple computer, it was, you know white words on a blue screen and if you had a pc it was yellow words on a black screen that's but you were talking to people on the other side of the world and you were you could communicate with people um you know just at all hours of the day that you wouldn't have access to normally so that was for us that was fascinating almost as fascinating the equivalent i guess today would be doing these zoom meetings and having these virtual meetings where you could bring people into your meetings from other countries to talk about important issues well that was kind of what that was that was the big the big mover and shaker that I just changed business I think so that was when Bob started doing research on biodiesel and found out there was a there was a, a, an actual um, research project going on at University of Idaho for used cooking oil because the the biodiesel that had been started to um, be developed in Europe was all um, was all using rapeseed oil mostly oh, sure. so it was all agriculture. When when we started looking at it, and, and Bob thought, well, there's got to be something we can do with this cooking oil. And he was relating it back to his days as a journeyman mechanic when he worked for Westport Marine in um, the state of Washington. They had uh, they were an engine, a trucker engine company. And so they would tell the truckers during the 70s when we had the, the oil embargoes and we were, um, you know, there were long lines at the gas stations. The gas stations were running out of fuel. Um, gas was going up to the exceedingly high price of 30 cents a gallon <laughs> back then it was like what is happening this is so expensive uh, but the um, the company he worked for would tell the truckers if you run out of fuel and you can't and you know you can't find a station right away go to the nearest grocery store and get a five gallons of Wesson oil and that'll get you to the next station oh wow and so that's so he already already knew there was a connection between vegetable oil and and you know fuel mm-hmm. uh, diesel fuel so when he started looking into um over the internet into what was happening and found this research group we actually brought one of the researchers over and partnered with him to build the first biodiesel plant on maui which was the first one you know there, there'd been some experimental stuff happening um east of the rockies we were the first ones west of the Rockies to actually have a have a commercial operation. And we had the first commercial biodiesel pump in the nation that was available to the public. So that was how we got into it, by trying to alleviate this, this problem at the landfill mm. and also divert all this um, material that could be used as a resource from the landfill and make it. And that's, that's sort of the crux of the circular economy, right? Is you take your resources and... Great if it's a waste resource, you know, if it's a waste product and you make it into something and you sell it back into your community or you provide a service in your community. And that's what the circular economy is in a nutshell. So we've been doing this since 1996 when we made our first gallon of biodiesel. And I got, I mean, this was really because I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm not a mechanic myself, but yeah. I got involved because I was watching them struggle to try to introduce this new fuel that we were only making, you know, uh, maybe a few hundred thousand gallons a year in mm. the beginning. 
and people not getting it. <laughs> I remember yeah. this conversation I had with my husband was like because I've always had a background in communications and I was doing sales and marketing for different companies. And I was like, you got to get, you got to have hire someone to do marketing for you. And you know, when you're an engineer and you think with an engineer's mind, it's like, well, why would we need that? This is a commodity. And I always tell people that my answer to him was toilet paper is a commodity, but you still see Charmin commercials on TV mm-hmm. and they're paying big bucks for that because you got to get someone to buy your commodity too if it's exactly. something that other people don't know about. So um, at the time I was on the State Board of Education and when I, um, and then I didn't run for a second term and then I decided to run for another term four years later and I told my husband, if if I don't make it, I'll come and work for Pacific Biodiesel and I'll get I'll get the um, marketing going. So that's what I did is I just set up a little corner in the office and, you know, started doing outreach. And I did a lot of presentations around the county and then I started doing around the state. As we got bigger production, because we were, we added, we started doing production on Oahu and we added another million gallons a year. And then we increased the Maui proposition, the output. And then eventually we decided to go to this state of the art, you know, real refinery, which is what we built on the big island. But it was really came from that early inspiration of how can we solve this problem? Mm-hmm. If you've ever been around somebody who's a mechanic or works in that field of, or probably doctors are the same way, I don't know, but anytime you present a problem to them, they have to try to fix it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my husband's like, you know, we've, we've had a lot of conversations about, you know, especially when I'm on the council. Okay. When I tell you about something that's going on, you don't have to fix it. All you have to do is listen. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to give me all these suggestions about how to fix things. Cause some of them are just things I'm going to have to figure out because you have to do with personalities, right. With my colleagues. So. Yeah. I love that you brought up kind of the education piece and the marketing piece of this, because that's with anything that's new. And that's like you mentioned, the toilet paper has been marketed to us. So that's why we use it. Just like certain fuels have been marketed to us or certain gas stations. I just think of something like a 7-Eleven, like 7-Eleven is kind of like a cultural thing in so many places in the country where, you know, you know, here you're used to going to the 7-Eleven to get your gas and maybe you know, spam musubi or whatever it is that you get. And where I'm from in the Midwest, we might go to 7-Eleven to get our gas and the brat fry that's outside. So we're marketed to, we're like kind of trained in these behaviors Mm -hmm. to go to this thing. Plus we're not just getting fuel, we're getting whatever maybe the cultural thing we get from that, meeting up with locals, whatever it might be. How do we start to unlearn some of these behaviors? Because it's just like buying local produce, you almost have to teach that to people because we're so used to, I can go to Target or Walmart or Foodland and just get it and go versus it's honestly that not that much more expensive to go to the farmer's market and buy it. It lasts longer. It hasn't been on a truck or a boat for a week. And the the biggest problem maybe is that it's inconvenient because you have to go to a farmer's market to buy your fresh produce. And then maybe you have to go to a drugstore to buy your toothpaste, right? Where you can go to Walmart and get both. Which How is do- what our our predecessors had to do. You know, our yeah. grandparents had to yeah. do all the time, right? They would go, I mean, life was not flip a switch and the lights come on or, right. you know, immediately. I mean, there were a lot of inconveniences, which is why it's called the inconvenient truth. You know, that's yeah. what climate change is. It's not, are the world that we're, we're 
going to find ourselves in as climate change progresses and we have these more and more disasters is not going to be convenient. Mm-hmm. And we have to understand that. Um, where, where we're at is it's so much work to try to get individuals to change their habits. I mean, there's some who are just really dedicated and have found us and will come to the biodiesel pump, even if they're across town. I mean, I had, mm-hmm. in, even in the early days, I had a guy call me up from Kapalua and said, hey, will that fuel work in my Hummer? Because he was doing um, uh, dive uh, dive trips, tourist dive trips. Like he would take people in his yeah. truck to shore and he'd take them out scuba diving. And uh, and I said, yeah, but, you know, if you're getting six, six you know, <laughs> six uh, miles to the gallon and you have to drive all the way over here to fill your truck, your Hummer up, you know, you have to think about the, right. you know, the, the what is the financial, you know, do the math and figure out if it's worth it. But, you know, he was so dedicated. He was an ex-Marine. Mm. And he had this sticker, this bumper sticker that's become one of our mantras, you know, on the back of his Hummer, on, on the back of his window that said, biodiesel no war required and i'm like i love that so we started you know we made our own bumper i said do you mind if we take that he goes no but you know it's interesting someone who was involved in war who was with the military is recognizing that and already has created that behavior for himself whereas if you have to try to convince people on an individual basis it's a lot of work for a little bit of return and that's why most of our fuel is sold uh, bulk you know, we sell most of our fuel now for stationary power to the utilities and to the utilities that are selling power to the Hawaii Electric Company. So that's the bulk of it. The The stations are important because of those, you know, being able to change people's behavior where we can. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily for our financial gain. That's because we have to do this as a world. Everybody's got to start realizing that we have to go out of our way to do the right thing, Mm -hmm. or we're going to be in a world of hurt even worse than we're on track for right now. So when there were early in the early days, actually, when we started selling more bulk fuel, my husband wanted to get rid of the biodiesel station on Maui because he's like, that's it's, we don't make a lot of money off of it. It's not, you know, there's, it takes a person to man it, it, you know, back then. Was a, I loved it back then because people would go fuel up. They would come in and they would tell us how much fuel they bought. They would read because we couldn't see the meter for, yeah. and we didn't have somebody standing out there. We didn't have the electronics weren't such that we had it set up that way. And they would just come in and go, "Oh yeah, I bought nine and a half gallons, and we charge them for that." You know, and every once in a while, I mean, we, it was funny because our clerk at the at the front desk. I mean, there was a window, and you could see the pump station, but you couldn't really see the the meter. Yeah. Every once in a while, she, the person who was sitting out there, finally got a binoculars, and every once in a while, she'd like, "Is that true? Is that really how much people?" <laughs> just just testing, yeah. right? But it was such a the people who sought us out were doing it because they were so dedicated. They weren't going to mm-hmm. cheat us, and you know, we had we had a real. Um, hippie clientele back then and people would come in with you know bare feet or slippers and holy t-shirts and they'd be like keep the chains you know it was just everybody who used our fuel who found us in those early days was so appreciative Mm -hmm. i mean how many other you'd never walk into a chevron and thank somebody when you're paying for your fuel no everybody used to thank us and, and we actually had people send us flowers and just you know there was that recognition so, you know, just going into the the uh, bulk market, we can get things done faster. We can alleviate more greenhouse gases than going individual by individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to do, continue to do outreach. It's important to, for people to know what's going on, um, largely because it gives people hope. Mm-hmm. We had a film done about us, a documentary called Revolution Green that was released in 2007, 
Um, but I talked to the guy who made it in 2005, and he was looking, he wanted to do his own documentary. He was an editor from Hollywood, and he had been saving money. He wanted to do his own documentary, and he wanted to do it on renewable energy. And after I talked to him about three or four times, he said, I really want to do focus on what you guys are doing there on Maui and with uh, biodiesel. And so the whole film became about that. And when we when we released the film, it was at the film festival. It debuted at the um, Maui Film Festival. And I remember um, it was standing room only. They had it in the McCoy Theater, so which only okay. holds like 350 people. And people would come in, sit on the floor, and stand against the wall. And when I was I was standing there greeting people because you know at our station, we had given out um, anybody who uh, you know the couple of weeks leading up to it, anybody who had filled up, we gave them a coupon for a free T-shirt if they went to this film. And so I was standing there giving out T-shirts. People, the reaction of people were like oh my God, I can't believe this is happening here. And one woman who didn't even have a diesel car, she was, she was, she came up to talk to me. She was, a, you know, someone who I got to know through the environmental community. She was standing next to me and she was crying so hard mm. that her tears were falling on my shoes. <laughs> and she said, I'm just so emotional because I just went to see the 11th hour and it was all doom and gloom. She said, now I'm watching a film where, yeah, it's talking about what could happen, but here's something that is happening now and I didn't even realize this was on our own island and so I gave her a t-shirt just so she could wipe her eyes (laughs) but the reaction of people when they find out is just like so much hope yes and it's the same reason we did we got into agriculture with the sunflowers because I had been studying um, biofuel the prospect of doing biofuels um, through agriculture here in the islands and had been told for years that well, land's too expensive and oil's too cheap. It's never going to happen. And I'm like, well, it's not going to happen. I know how it has to happen. Where there has to be some high value co-products. You've got to get the community involved. I mean, I, I you know, I, I had the vision back then. I just didn't have a lot of um, support. And now, you know, after um, HCNS announced that they were going out of business, everybody on the island was panicking. Are they going to develop those tens of thousands of acres? Right. Are we going to just see condos and you know housing, you know market housing um, fly up everywhere? <clears throat> and we wanted to show <clears throat> here's an alternative that we could do. So that's when we leased this property here at the farm, and we grew. We started with a sunflower field that you know I had been wanting to do forever. Um, and when people saw that first field, they just went nuts. It was yeah. um, it was interesting to see. I think we counted. We just estimated we had four to 5,000 people a day coming through the sunflower fields in that first bloom. And that first flower came up in that first bloom. <laughs> I went out <laughs> and took a picture with it. And I was like crying myself because yeah. it was so emotional to see something I had worked on for so long come to fruition and just be yeah. the start of this. But it, the biggest thing we got out of that first field is it gave so many people hope. Oh, there is something we could do. And there's something we could do in a big way that it fulfills a big need here in the mm-hmm. islands because we all know we need to get off petroleum you know we're basically sinking ourselves yeah. anybody who lives on an island is using petroleum you know we're going to be the first to go right with, mm-hmm. with the sea level rise so you know a lot of people are driving to the um the climate change rally on fossil fuel <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know here's an alternative and and basically we can grow our own if we if we do it correctly mm-hmm. so now we're into figuring out how can we do this um this model, how can we bring agriculture into the mix so we can get bigger? Because we're not, you know, we only have so much grease in the islands and we're not big advocates of pushing more 
french fries and donuts on people right so how can we do this correctly and it's with regenerative agriculture and we can show people how we can do you know large amounts of acreage with regenerative agriculture and Mm -hmm. then we can affect the corporate agriculture that's here as well and that's what this federal funding is going to help us do is to figure out how we're already um we're already farming with no pesticides and no herbicides but we're doing it on a small you know 30 or so acres at a time to me the best thing that that sunflower field did was it gave people hope Mm -hmm. and we've got a crop we were showing them one out of many crops we can grow it takes 25 percent of the water that sugarcane took you know it it um the bees love it we have beekeepers out here now so they're making honey Um, i'm told that sunflower honey is the best honey you can buy um, the, the, um, there's no GMO sunflowers, so we don't mm-hmm. have to worry about that, you know, and they're really good for the soil. They put nitrogen back into the soil. So we're, um, you know, you've got these long tap roots and we're trying to figure out, okay, how can we take advantage of that to hold water? And if we get to the point where we can actually afford biochar, sure, we'll do something like that. It's really hard for local farmers who are leasing land to invest in things like biochar because it's really a 20-year investment. If you've only right. got a five-year lease or a 10-year lease even, you're putting in pretty big money to um, to hold that water for you for 20 years when you might be up in five. Five, yeah. You know, so that's those are some of the economic things we're, we're going to try to help work out too for local farmers. Please join us next week for part two of our conversation with Kelly King where we dig into and talk about food security, and their upcoming Sunflower Festival on Earth Day. Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing, but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week. And as always, thank you for your support.